Welcome to On Air, a podcast from the Air community. The community organizes and coordinates researchers studying all aspects of B and T cell receptor repertoires. The podcast is supported by the Antibody Society. For more information, please go to antibodysociety.org. This podcast has a special focus on clinical use of the adaptive immune receptor repertoires. We will look at how repertoires are currently used in the clinic and also discuss different opportunities where repertoires can be a great addition, the reasons why we are just not quite there yet and how to overcome the obstacles. We are happy that you joined us for this episode of On Air. Welcome to the 13th episode of On Air, the podcast of the Air community with special focus on clinical use of the adaptive immune receptor repertoires. Today, we are very excited to welcome Maxim Savslavsky from the Department of Computer Science at Stanford University. Hi, Maxim. Hi there. Thank you so much for having us. And Scott Boyd from the Department of Pathology, also at Stanford. Hello, Scott. Hi, good morning. Maxim is the lead author and Scott, the corresponding author, on a very interesting preprint demonstrating how air sequencing and machine learning can be used in disease diagnostics. The podcast is hosted by me, Ulrich Sterfbo. And me, Ching. Hello, everyone, and welcome. So, Scott, a lot of your work has lately revolved around B cells and antibodies and their repertoires. One of the questions that we like to ask is sort of, you know, how did you get interested in the air or antibody or antigen immune receptor repertoires and the work that you do today and sort of how you got there? Sure. Yeah. Well, thank you. I am. Um, so, you know, I, I, I did MD PhD training. So I've, you know, did a combination of medical training and a graduate degree. One of my first research experiences with was in analyzing mouse immune systems when this was back at the time when people were knocking out some of the genes that control T cells, CD. 28, CTLA-4, some of the molecules that have now become important targets for drugs, for example, the checkpoint blockade drugs for uh, cancer treatment. You know, that was a very interesting experience. That was with Arlene Sharp's lab at the Brigham Women's Hospital in Boston. And then, you know, in, in grad school, I studied cancer topics with Tyler Jacks at MIT. And when I did my clinical training, I did pathology and sort of specialized in hematopathology, which is the, you know, disorders of the blood and hematological systems. And when I was starting my new lab, it was basically just around the time when high throughput DNA sequencing was becoming available. I was working as a you know kind of postdoc slash resident role with Andy Fire uh, at Stanford, and it seemed to me that this this area was was just ripe for exploration, and that it would probably be a very good way to look at B cell repertoires and T cell receptor repertoires with um, greatly increased sequencing capacity. So it seemed like a great inroad and a new technological innovation that you know much as improved sequencing really transformed microbiome and microbial research. This was sort of the human immunological counterpart where there was this vast universe of receptors that, you know, had been able to be studied um, in focused ways by people quite well up to that point, but there was just a whole expansion that I think was possible in what we could do. So that, that was really the, my entry point into this whole area. And we've been happy to be focusing on that for the last 11 years or so. And, you know, I think it's been a nice area to work in because there's quite a good community of you know, really friendly collegial people that are working on similar topics. So we've been happy to be part of that and, you know, be among the first that we're kind of trying to make use of the information that's locked in our immune receptor repertoires. 
and that are easily readable by sequencing. That seems like a very logical, one of the most logical career paths that are specific for air community and air, <laughs> at least that, that we've heard thus far. <laughs> Maxime, compared to your background, I mean, obviously now with the sequencing data, computer science background is, is very integral, but it's always very interesting how someone, you know, with a non-biological background finds a very niche, right, air topic. So how did you get into this field? Certainly. Well, uh, I will be the first to admit that I'm not a card-carrying MD, PhD here. I am uh, just a humble grad student here in computer science. Um, Saved you 10 years, Maxime. <laughs> but, uh, you know, wandered in uh, and uh, was, it's been an honor to, to learn from Scott and uh, the other experts here. My background is more in the medical device world where I worked in bringing uh, ultrasound to the point of care. And uh, now I think uh, just Starting grad school, I kind of fell in love with the interesting problems in immunology, and it kept looking like if we bring some of the new developments in machine learning there, there's a lot we could do. And of course, there's a lot of other folks working on that, so we're really building on the, the work that the AIR community has done. Now that you mentioned uh, machine learning, and uh, which is in the preprint that you have, maybe can you explain to us a little bit, so what was the idea behind this study of the preprint. Yeah, well, I can start and sure. Scott, please join in. Where we were headed with this preprint, which is called disease diagnostics using machine learning of immune receptors, we were focused in on how, you know, we have a lot of great lab tests out there and a lot of diseases have great diagnostics, but still there's some that are hard to diagnose with today's tools. And what's interesting to us is that the tools of diagnosis out there, they don't seem to make all that much use yet of the immune system's record of disease exposures. So can we read how the antigen-specific receptors on our B cells and our T cells change in their composition in response to disease? Can we read this repertoire to see what the immune system is reacting to? Those questions are old hat to folks in the air community, still pretty recent to me, but we've been diving in and trying to, we've been really excited about this idea of developing this diagnostic modality to get molecular fingerprints for complex conditions that aren't perfectly understood yet. And I think that the hardest part of all this is that repertoires are so huge and so highly variable that, you know, even though selection will lead to similar sequences across people, it's still quite challenging to build a robust diagnostic classifier that can read your B cells and your T cells and try to arrive at a prediction of what's happening in your body. So I think our work has focused on a few things. One is building a comprehensive, well-controlled data set that we've collected systematically from about 400 people to allow studying this question, to a modeling framework that we've designed to be flexible and interpretable. And the hope is to build on the great work of other folks in the field and combine some of the best ideas out there with some of our own little cherries on top to help unify things that sometimes are studied separately. You know, for example, B cells and T cells might often be looked at independently, but we are trying to really unite the signal from the BCR and TCR sides of the, of the adaptive immune system in our approach. And we see that that's hugely helpful. We can get more into how the modeling works in a second, but I think the third prong is uh, we really wanted to make sure that whatever we build actually has the capacity to be interpreted so that we can see which sequences matter. You know, we don't want to have a black box diagnostic algorithm that just spits out some number that is hard to work with. We'd really love to have something that A, is biologically useful, that tells you which sequences actually guide the prediction, and B, might down the road be useful in a clinical setting and give you something that is interpretable for a clinician. 
to make use of. The yeah. link to that, by the way, folks at home want to see it is uh, bit.ly slash malid dash preprint. I don't mean to be plugging our work here, but uh, <laughs> just because I think it'll help some of the rest of this make sense. Scott, yeah. is there anything you well, want to add? I was, I was going to say that, yeah, one of the, I mean, one way of looking at the diagnostic landscape would be that in terms of how the immune system is read out in current diagnostic, you know, methods, right? There's serological analysis where you're looking at the antibodies and their specificities, you know, and that's certainly useful for a bunch of different topic areas that can help to narrow down autoimmune disease diagnoses and can give you clues about I mean, infectious diseases and things like that. There's the actual detection of pathogens, right? Which is probably going to remain the go-to method for telling if somebody's actively infected with something, you know, that's sort of a workable and well-evaluated way of detecting, you know, infections. But in a way there's, you know, and then otherwise most of it is detecting tissue damage or the consequences of diseases, you know, I think um, either radiologically or by other kinds of lab tests and things like that. So there seems to be this big gap where there's hardly any diagnostic methods that make use of T cell information. And there's not much that makes use of B cell memory or the other aspects of the whole B cell side of the immune response besides just secreted antibodies. So that seemed like a big, you know, open area where people currently may feel that they know exactly how to diagnose every autoimmune disease, but that's using the methods that are available now. And I think there's a lot of evidence that there may be subsets or subclasses within a lot of diseases, for example, that might benefit from a different way of looking at immune system activity. And that, you know, extends to other areas of medicine, like transplant biology. You know, we can tell rejection more or less by detecting destruction of the the tissue that's been transplanted and detecting infiltrates of lymphocytes and stuff with invasive biopsies or other kind of evidence of damage. And I think that our hope is that by having a better look at the whole immune system, at least the adaptive side, with a focus on the receptors that guide antigen specificity, that we could unlock some of the information that might be useful for, you know, new kinds of diagnostics that are not yet available. So that's kind of the big perspective. You know, I, th I think we can go into a lot more detail. I, I mean, my whole clinical side is clinical pathology and, you know, lab testing and stuff like that as well. So there's a lot of aspects that affect what kind of tests get taken up and how, how they're used and whether they're reimbursed and whether they can be, you know, authorized by the authorities in different countries and things. So, And we're very lucky to work on this with a lot of folks, uh, really talented experts at an academic medical center, right? But perhaps outside of the walls here, out in the community, uh, you have less access to the kind of terrific workup that you would get coming in as a patient at a clinic here, right? And so it feels like there is a real need for, for more diagnostic tools, and hopefully we can lay the path there over time as a community. Yeah, and prognostic things, right? You know, there's diagnosis, but then there's lots of diseases where their course can vary dramatically in different patients. And then that's something that, you know, if they're immune mediated, there may be clues as to what's coming based on what you can read at a particular time point. So yeah, I think machine learning, well, as I alluded to, right, with the advent of next gen sequencing, it's really opened the door in interpreting the uh, TCR and BCR repertoires. And then with machine learning, it's really at least the promise, the community is really interested in the promise of, of machine learning to kind of unlock the mysteries of what these repertoires, these either public sequences or on the uh, nucleotide basis or the protein basis to try to use as a diagnostic or, as you said, a prognostic utility. But 
to me, I thought, you know, I mean, I haven't read all the papers. There's been a ton of papers lately. But what I found really interesting was your combination of both the BCR and the TCR repertoires in your modeling. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about sort of your strategy first is sort of, you know, how did you integrate the two and your sort of three-prong approach in this meta model? Sure. Maybe I, I can start with a little bit of discussion about the BCR and TCR repertoire data. Because one of the things that, you know, in my lab, what we've been trying to do from the outset is to try to collect very standardized data sets using, you know, very similar protocols in different projects over time and have all the wet lab side be very consistent. And basically in, in every project that we've done where we've studied a bunch of different infectious disease responses or vaccine responses or conditions like food allergy, some autoimmune disorders and things as well, we've tried to collect both uh, B-cell receptor or at least heavy chain antibody sequence data, as well as the TCR data, usually TCR beta, but now, you know, now increasingly with single cell paired heavy light chain or alpha beta sequences. That's something that we've wanted to do in a standardized way so that we could actually have both data sets from the same samples collected in the same way over a wide range of different projects in a very systematic way. And also to, you know, analyze the data very consistently over time. So that's something that made this current manuscript possible because we actually did have heavy chain and TCR beta data from a relatively large number of individuals and have very standardized protocols. So that, that made everything else easy because I think in this whole area, there's a lot of work that goes into attempting to correct batch effects or to correct for differences in primer sets that are used in amplifying sequences or basically things that are totally method and technical related, as opposed to things that are really going directly to the biological differences that are present in different people. So that was sort of like a starting point for this. And maybe Maxime, do you want to yeah. pick up from there? Well, I agree that the data is the most important part. And I feel so grateful to come here, work with Scott in his lab that has been collecting this data painstakingly, methodically over years, you know, but to go back to your question there also of how the machine learning works, I can try to walk you through the framework, if that'd be helpful. So we have this, as you mentioned, this three-prong approach, and the idea there is to try to leverage a few ways to extract information from what's happening in our B cell and T cell repertoires. I've been calling them model one, two, and three. So model one looks at overall repertoire composition. So it tries to take a very high level view of how your immune repertoires are organized. And down to model three, we're getting much more into granular sequence level information. So model one is looking at overall composition patterns. So VG usage amount of somatic hypermutation in the case of B cells, Model two is straight out of the literature, a technique that many groups have used in one way or another, identifying groups of highly similar sequences across people by looking for highly similar CDR3 loops among people with the same diagnosis. And it's basically a clustering approach. And model three is a bit newer, less well-established in the field so far, but I think gaining a lot of popularity and we think it's very promising. The idea is to use a bit of a broader proxy for receptor similarity. This is a this is going to take a minute to explain, but I think it's worth getting into just so we're all on the same page. So the idea with this model three, if I can go deep in it, is that amino acid edit distance might not give you the full picture when it comes to finding similar receptors. And, you know, we try to build a, a third model that finds more loosely related immune receptors that may still have the same antigen target. You know, these sequences, they're encoding these complex 3D structures, and we've seen that small sequence changes have big structural impacts. And so if there's a way to get out of just comparing sequences directly and perhaps extract some more fundamental features about them, that could really help you find disease-related sequences that are not immediately apparent from the CDR3 region comparisons that a lot of the field is based on. 
So folks have tried this in a, in a number of ways. You know, there's representations like Kamer frequencies, biochemical properties like charge and polarity. A lot of things have been tried. And what we've tried here in our Model 3 is language modeling. So straight out of the natural language processing community, there's all these new deep neural networks that model language and give you an internal representation of their understanding, if you will, of what a sequence or sentence of language means. In this case, we've used something called Unirep, which is out of George Church's lab. And, you know, there's a number of other ones out there. Mm. We're hoping that this framework is pretty flexible and we're not trying to say, you know, Unirep's the best choice for the job. It's more that we have these building blocks that you can combine in the ways that are useful for you and for whatever purpose you want to use this framework for. And you can synthesize information from all these approaches. But without getting, you know, too lost in the weeds of this language model stuff, the idea is if you just train a neural network to unmask hidden regions of an amino acid sequence... And if it learns to do that well, then somehow under the hood, it's extracting meaningful information about what that sequence represents. And we can talk more about how this all works, but we've basically fine-tuned that for B-cell and T-cell data, and we get these numerical vectors that represent B-cell receptors and T-cell receptors. And the takeaway here is that this is a more flexible way of finding related sequences, and it incorporates both like the general patterns of protein sequences at large that UNREP has with the fine-tuned intricacies of B-cell and T-cell data. And we found that it's far more effective than some of the mainstay CDR3 edit distance methods at finding experimentally confirmed SARS-CoV-2 related sequences. We can get into that in a moment, but we think that this has a lot of promise. Then you bring all these methods together, and this is really where we focused a lot of our attention. You can train all three of these methods, model one, two, and three for, for B-cells, train a separate one, two, and three for T-cells, and then have a final modeling component that lets all of those models have a vote and contribute to the final disease prediction. All these are good models, but combining them compensates for any blind spots that a single one of them might have. And so we're calling this whole framework MAL-ID. It's a, one of those fancy acronyms out there that we, you know, obviously we started with the, the shortened version and worked out, but we're hoping that this is going to be seen as a flexible and interpretable way of combining information from both sides of the adaptive immune system. And maybe there's one other important point to bring in is that the, the parts of the antibody and TCR sequences that we've been choosing to you know, represent with these methods in the language model part is the CDR loops, so CDR 1, 2, and 3. And so that, you know, that I think is, it's not like the language model has to be trying to predict the whole structure of a complex folded protein. We're sort of focusing on these loops that evolution has selected to be exposed, to be sort of grouped close to each other at the tips of the antibody or in the TCR and are the key ones for determining the specificity of what the antibody or TCR is going to bind to. So I think I think that also is, there's an important aspect about how much you sort of guide the materials that the machine learning approach is going to work with in the language model. We thought that might be a way to sort of focus the work of the language model on the parts that are probably the most important for uh, determining the specificities of the, of the receptors. Yeah. And conversely, we also let the machine learning guide us to some extent. You know, there's been a lot of questions in the field about are B cell responses or T cell responses the hallmark for particular conditions? And in yeah. some ways, this MALID framework tries to address that because it lets that, you know, final meta model that combines the B cell and T cell inputs, it lets that model have a bit of a say as far as, you know, which side of the world is more useful for predicting diagnoses of a certain disease type. You know, for lupus, for example, there's a prominent mm -hmm. role of antibodies in the literature. 
there's the, the notion that anti-nuclear antibodies are pathogenic, as far as I understand the literature, and I hand it over to the to the MD in the room. But we find that T-cell signatures of patients are, in fact, a more accurate way of classifying them, according to the meta-model and what it's using to make that distinction from the other disease types we have in the model. Yeah, and that, and that may also be an important point that depending on what you're trying to discriminate in terms of which diseases you have in that list that you're trying to separate from each other, you know, it may be that in certain comparisons, the T-cell component will be more important for distinguishing between two different disease types. In other cases, the BCR, but, you know, that might shift you if you add a lot of other new conditions into the overall comparisons that you're doing. So, yeah, and it's also, I mean, there's this whole aspect of currently we're trying to predict predefined categories that are from, you know, the... Uh, I don't know what to call it, like legacy medicine or something like the the whole previous body of clinical and scientific understanding of human diseases, right? But within the categories that we're trying to predict, we definitely recognize that there are clinically important subgroups and different manifestations. Like, you know, some lupus patients have a lot more. And you have 20 possible letters at each one, right? That's a humongous space to be comparing and grouping sequences in. So one advantage that the language model has is it reduces the dimensionality. It pulls out a compact representation you know, sure, the 1900 or 2000 dimensional vectors that we're using in our uh, preprint sound like a lot, but comparing in those, in that 2000 dimensional space is in some ways, it, it might be more tractable than the humongous space of raw sequences. Yeah. And that's just, just still sort of an open question in immunology is how many antibodies are there that could bind a particular epitope or a, you know, a slight variant of an epitope, right? I mean, my opinion is that that number is a really large number still, you know, there might be some that show up relatively commonly, but it's something that, you know, there haven't been many efforts to exhaustively explore that kind of question. I mean, the COVID pandemic is probably the best example we've ever had of, you know, looking very deeply at how many different antibody types bind to particular protein, you know, parts of the virus. And even that is limited, right? There's been so much focus on the RBD, you know, receptor binding domain part of the coronavirus spike. Even there, it's clearly not like a saturating experiment, even though we've had data from, you know, thousands of B cells and characterized monoclonal antibodies, the scope of, you know, the, just the, the uh, astronomical scale of the combinatorial possibilities of amino acid sequences makes it so that there's probably other surprises out of waiting out there, like, you know, amazing antibodies that would neutralize every coronavirus we've yet seen and new ones that could arise, you know, but things that have to be done, you know, in the wet lab and take resources and things as well. I'd like to go back to the data that was inputted into this model. As you alluded to, I think one of the struggles of this community or you know, anybody who's working in this field, right, is as what you said, sort of having standardized sample collection and then also the technical aspects of generating the sequencing data. And so there, I, we've you know, talked to a lot of people who've been mining either public data sets or trying to mix. And so your data set is all internally generated. So you have that piece normalized. But then you're looking at also very heterogeneous patient populations. So I'm surprised as to, right, like 400 sounds like a lot. But then when you think of, right, like especially with TCRs, right, the TCR is still recognizing the, its antigen in the context of a MHC. And so irrespective, I guess, of the MHC heterogeneity, you guys are still able to identify patterns of maybe disease subsets within these individuals. Can you speak a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah, I think, I mean, there are there are public TCR clones that seem to be able to work with, you know, more than just one very particular HLA allele. So I think that there's, you know, there's definitely, one doesn't 
necessarily have to have a, a fully HLA, you know, unified cohort in terms of having matched HLA types in order to detect public TCR clones. And, you know, it's, it's a combination of things where in a larger cohort, any two people might share, you know, one allele or, you know, part of the thing, and they'd have a, a signature that might be somewhat diluted by the fact that they don't share all the HLA alleles. But it seems like there is still information there that can be interpreted. But I think I, I agree with you that uh, larger cohorts are the direction that one would like to go with this in future. And that's some stuff that we're trying to do now is look at even bigger sample sets and collect the data. But something you brought up at the beginning of your question was, in addition to data sets that have differences in how they were collected in the public literature right now, there's also just the differences in sample quality, right? And, and cohorts in terms of, you know, where were the samples collected, how, what kind of material was it and that sort of thing. So we've been trying to focus on having a relatively robust wet lab side of preparing the sequences that doesn't require that the RNA be all of the most perfect quality, just because I think for, you know, as, as somebody who's worked in laboratory diagnostic areas, having a robust method that, you know, can handle things if there's a little bit of decreased quality of the specimen is important for making something useful in the real world. So that's been something we've tried to, you know, try to uh, incorporate into our overall scheme. I'll just add a couple of things that we've tried to do to, you know, account for the HLA backgrounds and, and other variation that is present in these cohorts. You know, first I should really say this is, we look at this really as a proof of concept. I think mm. when we talk about, you know, what is the path to bringing AirSeq to the clinic, you know, it takes a lot of rigorous testing for generalizability. And we've done some of that. So we've also tested on external cohorts. This was a big undertaking because, you know, as much as we've been, you know, very careful to collect data in a very systematic way, we wanted to make sure, you know, we weren't introducing a lot of you know, bias that the models were perhaps honing in on instead of the true signal. So we did some testing on external cohorts from uh, iReceptor Gateway, a part of the community here, fantastic resource, and very grateful to them uh, for making that available. And, you know, we found that despite the fact that, you know, those patients were uh, from different parts of the world and, you know, collected by other laboratories, sequenced in, in different ways, uh, we found that the method would work on them as well. Uh, so that was a very encouraging thing to see that the diagnostic performance was still there despite the fact that the data was collected differently and that the cohorts were different. We also have a number of demographic controls that we've done because we believe that, you know, these covariates, age, sex, ancestry, they will have a huge impact. And we wanted to be sure that that they weren't driving the results here. I can get into how we did that, but I think the takeaway is we tried to show clearly that that wasn't driving the results, you know, and that's the kind of testing that we'll need to do more of if we want to keep building this towards the clinic. It's also, yeah, that's something in the details of immunological diseases, you know, if someone who has a, you know, from a particular African population has lupus, for example, you know, how much is that disease going to be different in its manifestations from somebody with a Caucasian English background or whatever? I mean, there, there are things that could genuinely differ biologically, even though Overall, we would still want to group it together as the same category of disease unless there were extremely major differences. So, you know, that balance between the role of ancestry in shaping a disease phenotype and deciding how we want to classify diseases is important too, you know. So we're sort of looking for like the bigger signals that are in common amongst people that have shared clinical manifestations, but we're expecting that there's going to be interplay between, you know, a person's age, a person's sex person's ancestry in terms of other genomic variants that they may have elsewhere. So that's all part of the interesting picture that we have to sort of juggle. If I may add one more thing, you know, that's a great example of where the 
combination. But, but, but not a good metaphor. Juggling pictures. I don't know what I mean by that. But, yeah. <laughs> but combining B cells and T cells really helps with that, you know, ancestry confounding. We found that uh, there were examples in our data where, you know, on the if you just look at T cells only, you might uh, not be able to resolve the, you know, disease signal versus the ancestry signal. But combining the two helps clarify that. And, you know, with age, uh, you know, Scott brought that up. That's another huge impact that has to be carefully accounted for because we could really pick up on pediatric versus adult signals. You know, that in our data was quite straightforward to classify. But despite that, you could still separate, you could still tell apart healthy children from children with lupus, things like that. So what I'm trying to get at there is it's a very hard problem. And all we have right now is a proof of concept. And I, I don't want to claim any more than that, but we believe it can be done. We believe that despite the fact that you have all these effects that are built into a repertoire, so you can still, with the right sample size, with the right approaches, you still can pick up on the disease signals that are hidden inside. Yeah. And there's probably information there that would help to predict, you know, who's going to have a good response to other preventative things like vaccines or things like that, you know, or who's going to need, who at a certain age, for example, really should be getting like a, a vaccine with more adjuvant or a double dose, you know, or, or increased doses as is now deployed for, you know, for quite elderly people. But yeah, so there may be things that are, you know, would help with interventions in healthy people, but to help prevent them from getting diseases. Uh, I don't know if you want to turn your podcast into a vaccine related one, but uh, <laughs> maybe that's an oversaturated area right now. <laughs> okay, so one of the, you know, obviously there's a lot of promise. I think this this paper and this, as you said, this proof of concept study is is really intriguing and promising, as you alluded to, right, is is the combination of BCR, TCR, like that is the immune response, right? It's not just the T cell response. It's not just the B cell response alone. What I appreciated the most from talking to you or didn't appreciate until talking to you, somehow by looking at both, you seem to have overcome the comp complexity of HLA alleles, right? Like I think in the TCR world, we've always been kind of obsessed with, you know, this antigen response has to be in the context of these HLAs. I mean, it's really hard to find or to interpret the patterns in the broader heterogeneous patient or people population. So anyways, I think that the answer is, is quite obvious. I mean, it'd be almost everything, but what excites you most? You know, what's your next step with this model and its application in the clinical use? We first of all want to expand it to more patients, many more conditions, many more diseases. And so we're in the process of collecting data from a wider range of medical conditions and ones that have subtypes that are interesting, for example. So I, th I think that's the sort of the immediate urgent demand is to have like, you know, ideally at a population scale, these kind of data collected systematically. And, you know, one has to balance that with the, you know, use of resources, you know, the, the kind of things that are demands on you in an academic system as well. Like, you know, uh, ideally one would accumulate data for for quite a while and, and have a great unifying paper, but but there's also lots to dig into in any individual topic area as well. So I know that's the first thing. And, and I think a second major topic area would be making the most use, testing individual sequences that are prioritized in the model as being very important for a particular condition. Like, you know, we've, we've been doing that extensively in the infectious disease topic areas and have, you know, in other work, we've been collecting really large data sets of antigen-specific cells using the, you know, single cell transcriptome methods and also using large panels of DNA tagged antigens, ways that you can actually, you know, pull out this, the cells that are specific for many different microbes and things that, uh, in a single experiment. That's become a lot more cost-effective lately. So we're trying to, you know, push that to the max. 
that will really empower these models because then we'll have a lot more sequences, you know, in particular data sets where you really have an annotation. This is the B cell that binds the receptor binding domain of coronavirus or is an influenza HA binder or binds an autoantigen in an autoimmune condition, that sort of thing. I think that kind of real experimental validation confirmation of specificity will then guide the work of these models that can be applied more inexpensively to much bigger data sets with the sequencing data alone. I think those are like the two pillars that we want to have moving forward is bigger scale data and then, you know, more nitty gritty, but annotated uh, data at the receptor level. And that feeds into a lot of other things like, you know, finding out what antibodies are best tolerated in humans, which ones are, you know, likely to be compatible with all sort of therapeutic implications of that. I'll add two more things just briefly. One is, you know, on the road to building something clinically useful, you could argue that our comparison there of we have COVID and HIV in the in the model today, right? And maybe telling those apart is a great proof of concept, but not a very clinically useful comparison. You know, we have great tests for those. That's not a question that's going to come up. So how do we show that this is useful in the situations that uh, where current tests maybe fall short? And the second aspect that I would add is interpretability. I think there's always been this challenge of, you know, repertoires are huge. How do you make sense of these hundreds of thousands, millions of unique sequences that you get out of somebody in a typical sequencing run? We have this 2D visualization in the preprint today that we think is an interesting direction to keep exploring where it sort of lays out, you know, what is, can you look at somebody's repertoire at a glance, you know, and see where their sequences fall, uh, you know, which disease regions they fall into. Uh, So we really like to keep working on that and transform this from this puzzle of, I can't even make sense of sequences. What are these big buckets of data to here's like a visualization that makes it a little clearer. And this brings us to the end of the 13th episode of On Air, the podcast of the Air community with special focus on clinical use of the adaptive immune receptor repertoires. The podcast is supported by the Antibody Society. Please go to the website antibodysociety.org to get more information about our sponsors. If you have any comments or questions, drop us a line at onair at aircommunity.org or tweet using the hashtag onair with the two hours. Thank you, Scott and Maxime, for joining us today. It was a pleasure. Nice to talk to you. Thanks so much for having us, Ulrich and Ching. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, it's been really great talking about your publication, your preprint publication. We'll link it below. And in a month's time, we will return with more thoughts on the clinical use of air sequencing. All links and contact information are in the show notes. Thank you, everyone, for listening to On Air. Bye-bye now.